Good morning, Door Creek. It's good to be together on this Memorial Day where we remember those who have given their lives that we might do what we're doing right now, worship freely. So welcome. If you're a guest here, my name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team here at Door Creek, and we are just wrapping up. This is the second to last message in our Roadblock series, Finding the Way Forward Through Jesus Christ. So I want to tell you about this story that has to do with this woman, Becky Harmon. She bought a house a few years back in Marietta, Georgia, and to her surprise, about nine months later, she got this call from someone who said, hey, would you like some help as you're facing foreclosure on your home? She goes, what are you talking about? I've been paying my mortgage. And she finds out to her horror that a month after she took out her loan, her identity had been ripped off. And someone had actually started buying a couple of houses under her name. When she went to her credit score, she found out that she actually was the proud owner of three homes. Three homes. So she calls the police and she calls the FBI and the FBI gives her like a card that says, she is the real Becky Harmon. She's not the imposter one. And then the calls started coming and from the credit card companies and from all these stores asking, did you take out cards? And it was just this nightmare. She said she had to fill out everything in triplicate, have it notarized, turn her social security number, driver's license number, passport number, all this stuff in to every credit agency that was thinking she owned them money. And it, it was just hard, hard, hard. And then she said, I was hoping that like the local law enforcement or the FBI, hello, would you like apprehend this person who's impersonating me and just bring in all this mess? He said they, they couldn't get to it. They're just overwhelmed with this kind of stuff. I don't know if you know this, but just last year, 2018, there were over 60 million Americans that were victims of identity theft. So at the end of the day, her advice is you need to take control. You got to take control of this issue. Well, I want to say there's actually a greater identity theft that we need to talk about. That's not the stuff that Becky Harmon dealt with, as bad as that is. But it's actually something that all of us deal with and has everything to do with the roadblock we're looking at this week, which is insecurity. Insecurity is a sure sign that we've been hacked, that our identity is being compromised. And so we're going to look at the bad news and the good news about our insecurity. The bad news is we all have them. It's not new news. It's just bad news. We all have them. Doesn't matter how successful you are, what you've achieved and, and gained in notoriety, fame, wealth, fortune, position, whatever. We all have them. The good news is God uses them in two ways we want to point out. Number one, they're a warning light. They're flashing like that warning light on our dashboard that goes on. And it's saying, your identity is being threatened. It's pointing to some false God, to some alternate voice that you're listening to that is leading you down the wrong path and leading you to the wrong conclusions about who you are. So it's a warning light. But then it's also an invitation almost like some of the wedding invitations we're getting at this time of year, that's inviting us in to something far greater through Christ. So, when did we first meet this whole 
thing called insecurity. When is the first time we felt insecure? Because what we're talking about here is not financial insecurity or all the other kinds of insecurity. We're talking about personal in our being. When's the first time? For some of us, it was grade school. We got picked on. Or maybe there's some hard things being said actually even in our homes. For others, you know, junior high. And I'd say if, if grade school didn't get us, junior high got the rest of us, right? I mean, talk about insecure t- period in our life with our bodies weirding out and trying to fit in and doing crazy things like I did to try and fit in, wondering if we could belong and figuring out how do we find ourselves at this time in this place with these students, and it didn't go away. It wasn't like, wouldn't it have been nice if we got through junior high and we go, good, we graduated from junior high middle school and we're done with insecurity. No, they followed us right in high school, right? And they just were, you know, am I going to make the play? Am I going to get the part? Am I going to make the team? Am I going to start? Am I good enough? Is he going to ask me out? Is she going to say yes? What kind of an SAT? Don't talk to me about my test scores. I don't want to talk to you about that. What school did you get in? Well, I'm not going to school. So do you think about me differently if I'm not going to school? You know, all these things. And you go to college, and you're going off to a career, and you're wondering if you're good enough to get the job, you know, if you're smart enough to keep the job. All these pressures, right? Marital pressures. Am I going to get married? Are we going to have kids? Am I going to be a decent parent? I don't even know what I'm doing here. Pressure, pressure, pressure all the time. It doesn't matter who you are. We all deal with it. Ellen DeGeneres, of course, jokes about it. She says, I got an approval patch. It's like a nicotine patch. Just put it on every day, and it just kind of meters out approval to just kind of deaden the feelings of insecurity that I had each day. Madonna, more honestly, describes her insecurities with these words in an interview with a magazine called Vanity Fair. She said this a while back, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. This is Madonna. I'm always struggling with that fear that I think I'm mediocre or uninteresting. And that's why I'm always pushing, always pushing. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. And social media just compounds the issue. Steve Ertig, pastor, author, says this. The reason we struggle with insecurity is because we compare our behind-the-scenes life with everyone else's highlight reel. Social media is not our real life. It's just what we want you to think about our life. And when we compare our real life with our highlight reel, we feel like duds and losers and like we don't have a life and we need to get a life. So we all have insecurities. So what is it exactly? The definition is it's uncertainty or anxiety about oneself. It's this lack of confidence. Another way to describe it is this deep, powerful fear of others' disapproval or rejection, this heightened or chronic sense of inferiority, that I'm not good enough, smart enough, fill in the blank. The definition reminds us when it includes the word anxiety that, hey, wait a minute, that was one of our roadblocks, worry, anxiety, Pastor David, a couple weeks ago. So actually, if you think about it, this roadblock of insecurity is kind of interwoven either on the front side or the back side of just about all the other roadblocks. Fears drive us to insecurity. So too hurts, 
worries, so connected, maybe concurrent with them. Depression, insecurities, it's the backside, right? Denial, the cover-up, anger, the response, guilt, a response, pride. Yeah, we're covering it up, right? We don't have any, we're proud. And we'll see next week, it fuels even our prejudice against other people and peoples. Either brings it on or some kind of a shadowy result of these other insecurities. So how's it a roadblock? We'll consider a couple things. Number one, it disengages us from the great commandment. Remember the great commandment? It's Jesus in the Bible says it's, it's two things wrapped in one thing. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. When we're insecure, we're out of position. We're not looking up to God and we're not looking out on those we're called to serve. We've turned inward. Our focus is on our own insecurities and how to shore them up so that people don't have any clue about how messed up we feel inside. Not only that, it disconnects us from the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. Man, I'm not positioned to even think about other people when I'm consumed with my own insecurities, let alone be this ambassador for Christ. Like, I'm freaked out. Like, if I even say anything about Jesus Christ, they're going to think I'm some weirdo, and my insecurities kind of put a muzzle on my life and my actions and my words in relationship to the people God's called me to love and serve. Insecurities keep us from experiencing life as God intends. What is that life? It's a life of abundance, of meaning, of significance, of deep relationships, of lasting joy, of abounding deep peace, where we actually experience what it means to really be alive and actually what it means to really be human. Our insecurities keep us from that. So I got this wild word picture that's almost like a movie. So you ready to enter my wild thinking on this whole thing? All right, so the word picture is a, a, a roundabout without exits. All right, a roundabout without exits. So here's how we got to the roundabout. We were going down life's road and we were driving the car. And all of a sudden, insecurities, who was riding shotgun, they grabbed the wheel, and they yanked it. And we went careening off the road here. We clipped a mile marker. We went down through the ditch, up the hill, across some rocks and trees. And all of a sudden, we landed on some pavement that kept going around and around and around, circling ourselves, and camped out in the middle of that cul-de-sac were all these voices that were whispering to us, telling us who we are. These are big deal. These insecurities, they are a big deal. And living on that roundabout is the last thing that God wants for you to experience in what he calls the abundant life. Here's how you know if we've got to struggle with insecurity. Let me just take off a few here. When what others think is of utmost importance. That's an insecurity thing. My mom used to always say to me when I was growing up, she'd say, Mark, don't worry about what other people say. She said it all the time as I reflect back. Why did she say that? Because we worry about what other people say or even think. 
right? We know we're struggling with insecurity when we're constantly comparing ourselves with others, their looks, their lives, their marriage, their kids, their house, their toys. We Photoshop our selfies even, right? We're obsessed with our looks. I didn't say we don't care about our looks, but we're obsessed, we're preoccupied. We struggle with envy. Like we can't, we can't follow them anymore on Twitter. It's too much. I gotta shut down the Facebook and the Instagram and the Snapchat because my life is so vanilla ordinary and everybody else is so exciting and, and I just can't handle it anymore. When we have no stomach for even helpful feedback, rather we just settle into this eddy of judgmentalism and criticism and tearing people down, especially anybody who would threaten our reputation. When we find ourselves doing things to fit in that go against our values and our norms and our convictions and our beliefs. When we lie or tell a half-truth so we look better, right? When we exaggerate so we look better. Actually, we lie so we don't look bad, right? But we exaggerate so we look better. When we're addicted to people's praise and we are craving it all the time. We're it, when we're in this performance trap, like, like the hamster just around and around, just trying to do a little better so I feel a little better. Signs, all signs of insecurity. Psychologists would tell us these insecurities start in our childhood. Maybe they have to do with the past trauma, with failures, with rejection, betrayal, loneliness, a critical parent, a critical spouse, perfectionism. The Bible, though, answers it differently than psychology. Want to know what the Bible says about our insecurities and how we got there? Turn your Bibles to page one. That's how quickly, that's how quickly the Bible addresses this. Genesis chapter one. So if you've never read Genesis before and you read it for the first time, all of a sudden you notice there's this repeated phrase. There's actually a couple of repeated phrases. If I asked most of the people who've read it before, they'd go, oh, I know what you're talking about. At the end of each day, God would say, it was good. It was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. On the sixth day, it was very good. I think I just did that seven times. But anyways, on the sixth day, very good. But there's another repeated phrase. And God said, look, look at it. Verse three, and God said, let there be light. Verse six, and God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. Verse nine, and God said, let the water under the sky, right? Verse 11, then God said, let the land produce vegetation. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky. In verse 20, and God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Verse 24, and God said, let the land produce living creatures. All of a sudden, we're introduced to a God, the God of creation, who speaks. He talks. His words are so powerful, he brings everything into existence out of nothing, and his word says something about our identity. Verse 26, do you see it? Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals. And, turn the page, 
over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. We're introduced to a God who speaks and a God who tells us who we are. Genesis 1.26 says, we uniquely in all of creation, no other animal that Adam names, not even the angelic beings, no one besides humans are created, get this, in the image and likeness of God. We're stamped and marked so we're like him. What does that mean? What, do we look, what does that mean to be created in his image? Well, trust me, there are thousands of pages written over the last 2,000 years plus over what this means. But in the text, it's clear. that One of the ways that we're like God is we are called to rule like God, but under his rule. But we too are called to be rulers, to take care of his world and to fill the world with his image. So be fruitful and multiply. It's not, hey, Adam and Eve, now that you got married, I want to just give you a little advice here. The program is you got to have kids. A lot of kids, you're the first ones. We need a lot of kids because it's a big place here. And we need a lot of kids to take care of what I'm asking you to do, to rule and subdue the earth. No, actually, fruitful and multiply is multiply my image. My image that bears my glory and gives me glory so that the whole earth is filled with God's glory. So go back to the Ten Commandments. The first commandment, if you don't know it, should have no other gods. The second commandment is you should have no graven images. Why would it be wrong to have a physical representation of the invisible God? Why was it wrong that Aaron would shape the golden calf when they're struggling because Moses hasn't come down for 40 days? We haven't seen him. We haven't heard from God, and we just need to worship a God, the God that took us out of, we're not saying this is our God, he's saying he's like our God, and we're celebrating and worshiping the God who took us out of Egypt. Why is that wrong to have a graven image? Because God said, I've already made a graven image. I've graven my image in you. A calf isn't gonna do it. There's something far better than a golden calf. It's you, it's me, creating the image of God. When we rule over his creation, together in relationship, male and female, we are bearing the image of God and called. So our identity and our mission are never inseparable. We're creating the image of God. That is who we are, image bearers of the king. And we have purpose. We're to rule under him. All things have been placed under his our feet, the scriptures say, and we are to fill the earth with his image. Commenting on this very text of the Bible, the psalmist, King David, writes this in Psalm 8, verse 4. What is mankind, God, that you are mindful of them? God, we're, we're just created from the dust. Why would you be mindful of us? Human beings that you care for. You have made them, humans, a little lower than the angels. That word angels actually could be translated God. We're just a little lower. We're not God. We're like him, creating his image, a little lower than the angels and crowned 
his royal regal representatives with glory and honor. You made them rulers of the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. God's voice, rightly heard, says, we are image bearers of the God of this universe. Do you know when people come and see you in family? Remember this? It happens still today, right? They go, oh, you remind me so much of your mother. Oh, you look so much. I mean, I look at myself in the mirror and go, oh, my word, that's my dad. It's my dad. Right? And so, you know, we may have differing responses to that. But if someone said, wow, you look so much like God. What? What are you talking about? We are image bearers, crowned with glory and honor. That is who we are. That's what God's voice is telling us in the very good beginning. And when Adam and Eve heard it, and chapter 2 says they believed it, because it says at the end of chapter 2, after they've been created and given this charge to go rule and subdue and take care of the earth, it says they were naked and not ashamed. The reason the writer says, and not ashamed, because everywhere else nakedness is mentioned in the Bible, it's connected with shame. But not the first time. He wasn't saying they were naked and they didn't have any clothes. He, didn't, he, was, he was saying they were innocent. It was right in the world. It was right in the heart of their hearts. It was right in their relationship with God. It was right in their relationship as husband and wife. It was right in their relationship with the whole created world. They were fully known. They were fully loved. They were fully secure, naked, not ashamed. Chapter 3, that phrase gets swapped to naked and ashamed, sewing clothes and covering up, hiding from God's presence. Why? How did they go from naked and not ashamed to hiding and blaming each other, covering up their nakedness and hiding from God? How did that happen? They listened to a different voice. Chapter 3 introduces the serpent who is none other than the great enemy, Satan, the adversary, who's called the father of all lies. He slips into the garden and he brings an alternate word which contradicts God's word, which, you know, says, hey, he questions God's word. Did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? You're not going to die if you eat from that tree. In fact, he's holding back something good that's at the core of your true identity and purpose in this world. You're supposed to not be like God. You're supposed to be God so that you know what is good and evil. Up to this point in the story, the only person who defines good and evil is God. Every day, it was good, it was good, it was good. And evil, oh, see that tree, Adam and Eve? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You got everything else. But uh, there's a wet paint sign, there's a fence around that. Don't touch it, and I mean don't touch it, because if you do, it's bad. 
It'll be bad. It'll be evil for you and for the world that I have created. You will bring such hardship and suffering. And so they believed this alternate word. They saw it as a better word, a greater mission, a richer identity, a better life. And in doing so, they mucked it all up and introduced the world and all of humanity to insecurity. Look at verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Guys, what that means is he was a passive punk right there, not performing his role in his family to protect his wife to live under the authority of God's word. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. And unlike 225, they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And in verse eight, they hid from God. They didn't take out his word. This is where insecurity began when we stopped listening to God's voice and began listening to an alternative voice, any other voice, which actually is tracked right back to that enemy's voice. That's how it all started at the very good beginning when innocence was swapped and paradise was swapped for insecurities and hardship and sufferings and struggle doing life under the curse when they had life under the blessing of God as they lived taking him at his word. So God's word is our life. And when we reject it, we lose life. The point of Genesis 1 is God's word gives life. And when we reject God's word, we cut ourselves off from the life that God has intended for us. We lose our true identity and purpose in this world. And so they're merciful reminders, these warning indications, these warning signs that we're following false gods. Insecurities, look at this slide, point to the gods in our life that we trust will determine our true worth. And that's a helpful thing about insecurities. It's reminding us that we actually are trusting in something else for security, for significance, for success, for happiness. It's a false God, but it's real. We're actually turning to it. We're listening. We're metering our lives, comparing off our lives. We're setting the trajectory of our lives off of those things, off of those voices, those gods. And anything that promises us security and identity and significance and meaning in this life apart from Christ is a lie and it can't deliver on our promises. So as I'm thinking about the insecurities, the insecurities in our life are feelings that we have that are usually at the beginning raised with a question mark. Am I blank enough? Good enough? Good looking enough? smart enough, talented enough, wealthy enough, successful enough. It starts with a question, and over time, the question unanswered leads us, it changes to an exclamation 
point where we go, I'm not. I'm not these things. And I start to define myself by these unanswered questions that are all traced back to my insecurities. So the slide will say, all right, what's in the blank for you? When it comes to the people we're comparing and listening to. And then what are the statements that we're starting to actually attach? Maybe it's a statement that actually somebody else said. And you're just stupid. You're never going to amount to much. And man, I don't know about you, but there are some powerful tapes that can play in our mind. And here's the crazy thing. We are letting that voice have power in our life when we refused to turn to God and identify ourselves according to what he says we are and what we are to be about. So make no mistakes, I've got them. I can quote them verbatim. They're powerful, but they're not true. They're not true if they're not connected to God's word that says, image bearer, crowned with glory and honor, a a child of the king by the grace of God through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And we, we are in danger of asking the wrong people the right question. Don't ask anybody other than God who we are. What do you think about me? We gotta ask God. That's where we've got to go. And so it all started by listening to the wrong voice, rejecting the voice of God and turning to the alternate voices for a better life, only to find out we lose it. We lose it. So they're blinker, they're warnings, but they're also invitations to something far better. Isn't it great that the false gods don't satisfy us? Isn't it great that God's world is coherent. So if he is the life giver and sustainer and the one in whom his right hand are the pleasures forever, that we could never get the full pleasures in life. Isn't it great that our hearts are restless until they find their rest, as Augustine says, in God? Isn't it great that that the things that we're chasing don't satisfy? Because they remind us Not just that they're false, but they remind us that there's a God who even in our insecurities that we've rejected him or we're tuned into all these other voices keeps begging us and beckoning us and say, come on, come on. I sent my son who invites us when he says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Man, if there's anything that wears you out, it's trying to find your identity in all these things other than Christ. Christ says, I'll give you rest. A rest that's far greater than a Sunday afternoon nap. A rest that goes deep, that settles us, that makes us strong, and it positions us with the fullness of Christ to be his lights and to serve and to find the joy that comes not in in helping people shore us up, but giving our lives away because we're shored up, because we're living on the rock of Christ. Amen? Amen. So Jesus says the thief in John 10, 10 comes, even Satan, the enemy of our hearts, the serpent back in Genesis 3. The thief comes only to steal, 
kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And Jesus brought fullness to a ton of insecure people in his day. Consider Nicodemus, so insecure that this religious leader who was part of the Sanhedrin council, this is the elite of elite. The Pharisees and Sadducees that together comprised the Sanhedrin council. He wasn't an up and comer. He had made it. But he slips in under the cover of darkness, John tells us in John chapter 3. And it's not an insignificant detail. Just want you to know that when he met Jesus, it was at night. It's like, the reason he met Jesus at night, because he didn't want any of his buddies to know. And he comes to Jesus, and he goes, well, Jesus, man, I'm, I'm hearing your teaching. It's pretty awesome, man. I'm thinking you're from heaven. Like, you're not just another guy. You're from heaven. Jesus goes, well, that's, you're getting there. You're getting close. But I don't think you know who you are. You think you're on the inside. Actually, you're on the outside looking in. You think you're in because you're a religious guy who's all about religious works. Actually, you know what? You're not in. And the only way you're going to get in is by believing in the one who's going to hang on a cross like that bronze serpent in the wilderness back in Numbers. And by believing in him, that's when you're going to find eternal life. And so you need to be born again as you place your faith in the true Messiah. Because I'm not just a good teacher and I'm just a prophet from heaven. I am the son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Believe in me, eternal life. The woman at the well. Oh man, insecure. She's working on her sixth man by the time she meets Jesus. She's burned through five marriages and she, she's got a problem, but her problem isn't that she's wanting the wrong thing. She's wanting a secure identity and a love of a man. She's just looking to the wrong man. Jesus says, I'm the man. I'm the man. Those guys keep leaving you thirsty, don't they? They keep letting you down. I'm not going to let you down. You, you connect to me through faith. You're going to be connected to living waters so you never thirst again. Deep satisfaction, deep security, abundant life. Peter, who's dealing with insecurities because, man, he just put up a big F. Man, he really cares about what other people think. And he really cares about his performance. Hello, any of us? No, that's just the other people we know. And what did he do? He denied Jesus three times. So after Jesus raised from the dead, there, Peter goes back to fishing. Why? Because he's got an identity crisis. Because his identity is based on performance. His identity is based on what people think. Why do you think he capitulates in Galatians 2 when he gives into the Judaizers and he's been eaten with the Gentiles and now when the Judaizers come, he's going, oh my gosh, what are they going to think? I'm not going to that lunch table. I'm hanging out at this table. Because he's really concerned about what other people think. I mean, that's just totally Peter's problem, not our problem. But anyways, it was Peter's problem. That was a joke. So what happens? He goes, because I probably don't have Jesus' approval because I just posted a big F when I denied him to some, just this little servant girl in the courtyard. She didn't have any power to do anything to me. But I said, hang it, I don't know that man that you're talking about. I'm not his follower. And the rooster crowed and he went out and he wept bitterly. And you know what he did? He gave up his fishing nets for men to go back to fishing for fish. 
And that's where Jesus finds him, completely wrapped in his own insecurity. And Jesus graciously says, hey, Pete, do you love me? Because I just want you to know I've already forgiven you, but I don't think you've caught up with the fact that I'm a merciful God. And when I died on the cross, I died even for your failure to acknowledge me in a moment of weak cowardiceness. I've forgiven you, but just so you can catch up with what I've done, I'm going to let you three times affirm that you love me so you can get on with the work that I've called you to do. Go feed my sheep, go feed my sheep, go feed my sheep. I didn't call you to follow me and be a fisherman. Not that you couldn't be a fisherman and follow Jesus. I called you to be my disciple, my apostle, to go tell people about me, to spread the good news of the kingdom and to take care of my people, my sheep. Get on with it. Last example, the thief on the cross. Talk about the ultimate posture of insecurity. Hanging naked on a cross. When everybody around is mocking Jesus, spitting at him, and they hang naked next to each other, his buddy, the thief that was caught and rightly deserved capital punishment, he said, is still taking jabs at Jesus, but he turns to Jesus and he said, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, you know what? You're nailed and about to be crucified by this Roman execution, but in a nanosecond, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus meets insecure people, completely transforms their life and their destiny. So whatever the failure, we've all had them. Whatever the whispers, and we all hear them. Whatever the trauma, the rejection, the betrayal, whatever the standard that we're comparing ourselves to, We've got to listen to the one voice who made us, who loves us still, and the one who's calling us to find our true identity in him and with that, our true security and our true significance and purpose in this world. The gospel says without Jesus Christ, we are naked and ashamed. But because of Christ, who hung naked on the cross, bearing our shame, uncomfortable literally in his own skin, that we could one day find our true selves and be okay with who God made us to be today. In Christ, we're forgiven though we were condemned, chosen, though forsaken, adopted, though we were rebels who committed treason and deserved to die. We're justified, though we've gone through life justifying ourselves before others. We're strong, though we're weak. He's for us, not against us. We're loved with this everlasting love that nothing, not even death, can separate us from. And Paul says this, if we are in Christ, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is, if we've placed ourselves if we've placed our faith in Christ, we're in Christ. There's this spiritual, mysterious union where now he lives in us by his spirit and we are in him through faith and the new creation has come. New. What was messed up in Genesis 3 is the beginnings of that is being recreated, not in its fullness because we still messed up in this twisted, fallen world. And we're still dealing with insecurities and fears and sin and rebellion in our own life. 
But the beginning, there's new tastes. There's little tastes of Eden, of the new creation. That we're his children. The old is gone, and the new is here. There's a verse, actually a couple verses in your bulletin. Pull out that little blue card. Do you see it? I want you to have this blue card because my guess is when you went and got up and went to the bathroom mirror and looked at yourself, the first word was not masterpiece. Man, I look like a masterpiece this morning. And I guarantee you, if you're listening to the voices that aren't Christ, that aren't God's word, nobody's saying masterpiece. They're promising how you can get there, but they're not yet calling you that. This is who we are, created in the image of God, crowned with glory and honor. Would you read it with me out loud? For we are God's masterpiece. Let's just read it again. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Identity and mission. Do you see it? Masterpiece. You're a Rembrandt. You're a Picasso. You're a Michelangelo. You're a Velasquez. You're a Tanner. You're a masterpiece. How? Because you've been created in Christ Jesus through faith in Christ Jesus. You're a new person. The old is gone. And you are created as a masterpiece to do good works that he's planned in advance for you and for me to do. So don't miss out. Because if we miss out on the masterpiece part, trust me, we'll miss out on the good works part. The voices have been saying, you're a master flop. You're a master disaster, a master mistake, a master loser, loner, weak person, failure. God says, through faith in Christ, a masterpiece. Your masterpiece. Don't let your feelings today define your identity. Your feelings may not be telling you the truth. They have a very difficult ability to tell us the truth. God's word never lies. Your feelings are strong. You've had them a long time. That doesn't mean they're true. Listen to God's voice. There's huge implications. Parents, you know, when our kids are are dealing with insecurities, you know, the thing we want to do is give them comfort, and we should do that. But if, if it just ends in comfort in these words of affirmation, and we should do that, we could actually be guilty of just giving these emotional painkillers and never addressing the core issue. And that is, they can't find their true identity in the words of other people. They've got to find it in the word of God. And they got to find it in a relationship with Christ. And so we got to talk to them about how, how we're dealing with that and how Christ is helping us. And so huge implications for parenting. Huge implications if we're married or in a relationship. Like, if we're looking for that, that woman, that man to shore up our insecurities, trust me, it's okay to have expectations that they're going to encourage you. That's a good thing. But if you think they're going to shore up everything that's inadequate and what you're feeling insecure about, they can't do that. Only Christ can do that. And so let the gaps in your relationships not make you mad at the other person, but make you glad that you've got Jesus in your life. Let the gaps always drive you to Christ. Huge implications for our devotional life 
if we're not in the word of God, how in the world are we going to hear God's voice? And it's not enough once a week. Because you know what? I forget what I preached on by Monday afternoon. So at what point are you going to forget? We need God's word every day. It's God's word that takes us out of the roundabouts of life. It's God's word that is true. It's not an idle word. It is our life, Moses says. It has huge implications for our ministry as we serve here in this place. It's not about excellence, even though we want it to be excellent. It's not about people liking us. It's about pointing people to their only source of life and their only source of strength and their only sure foundation, Jesus Christ. You know, for 23 years, I was a pastor and I shepherded different groups of people, students, young marriage, families. And now I have this beautiful responsibility of shepherding a church, a group, along with other pastors. So over the years, one of the things that has just become this just overwhelming desire that I have for you guys is that you'd find security in Christ. That you'd believe who he says you are that you'd be on with his mission, that you'd grow a, a kind of strength that you've never experienced before that allows you to be courageous in ways you've never dreamed to see God use you in ways you could never have imagined. I long for that, that you get out of the roundabout as you just keep listening to his voice. So face them but don't follow them. Trace them back so you can tear down those gods and we all have them. Listen to his voice. You're not a Christian, you go, why should I listen to Jesus' voice over Muhammad's? Jesus' voice over Buddha? Jesus' voice over Confucius? Why should I listen to Jesus' voice? Because he's the good shepherd and the good shepherd knows you and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That means you and me. And there's nobody else who's done that. And there's nobody else that can make you secure in this life in light of all that you've done and left undone and give you hope for the future and a strong standing today to live life to the fullest. That's why we listen to Christ because he's the good shepherd who leads us in paths of righteousness beside the quiet waters and allows us to find rest in the green pastures. Follow him, your good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your mercy and forgiveness as so often our ears are tuned to every other voice. So often we validate our feelings as true and we insult your true word. Forgive us. Deliver us from these wrong voices, from our insecurity, Rescue us from the roundabouts of it all. Forgive us for the way that we've compounded the problem as actually we've put other people down and driven the insecurities deeper and the people that we love and have been called to serve. Forgive us, Lord. And we've done that to our wife. We've done that to our kids. 
Lord Jesus, hear the cries of those who call to you for the first time. Have mercy. Have mercy. Make them new creations today, masterpieces today, ready to serve you the rest of their lives. Hear our voice as we cry again to you, Lord, save us, rescue us again, dear Jesus, that we'd be secure in you to live life for you as you intended. Lord, thank you for being the rock who was crushed on the cross, that we could stand strong and tall today. May we fill the earth, your people here at Door Creek, with your glory till you come or call us home. In Christ's name, God's people said, amen.